live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. Okay, so taking the public dump out. This is the press box. You have zero leverage here, and we don't like you. With. I I think he got into one of those relationships with, you know, just a manipulative girlfriend. Ed Graney and Adam Candy. Yeah, all right. Here we go on a Thursday. It's Ed, Adam, Danny running the show. No show tomorrow. And uh, Bischoff is back Monday. I think it's uh, Bischoff and Gooch on Monday. We're all over the place, aren't we? We're all over the place. But that's what happens in the summer when uh, you got to take some time and there's really a uh, little to talk about. How are you, Adam? Well, you got to find a way to take some time <laughs> off. Once we hit football season, everything's full speed there's, ahead again. There's full speed ahead. Uh, it's NBA draft day. We'll get to the uh, hockey in a second. Do you get to, is this uh, excite you? I mean, uh, I don't know if it's a, a draft. We're going to talk about it in a little while and give our draft picks if it's a draft with a bunch of great players. But do you watch it? Does it intrigue you at all? We have to understand, Ed, as a Knicks fan, there are only certain days on the calendar you can get excited <laughs> about. And draft day is one of those days because it is one of the few days where you have a little bit of hope, where you can watch who they get and think to yourself, all right, maybe that's the piece that gets us, I don't know, the eight seed. Are Knicks fans like Jets fans when they hear the pick, they start screaming uh, no, no, no? Or are they actually saying, hey, are all Knicks fans saying, this is the guy, this is the guy that's pushing us over the top? Well, it depends. Is that pick going to be Michael Sweetney? Right. Or is it going to be someone who might help us? Right? right. We're not necessarily going to yell immediately because we still believe in the players. It's just the ownership is so bad. We're like, oh, cool. This guy's really good. How is James Dolan going to screw this one up? We, we were talking the other day. I, I want to ask you this because uh, our buddy Steve Karp uh, for years, uh, you know, he's a New Yorker. Uh, not like, loves all New York teams like yourself. He once said, and I want to ask you about this. When everyone's going well, when everything's going well in New York, that the that the uh, number one team is the Giants. Ooh, that is a tough call right there. Uh, the Yankees are the Yankees, but I don't know, man. Uh, the Giants, when they are really, when they're really good, going hot. Yeah, it's hard to get around that, right? We, we've never really seen it with the Jets in the modern era. Right, it just hasn't happened. So we had a chance to test it out, but I mean, the, I'm very fortunate. The Giants have won four Super Bowls in my lifetime, and it definitely tracks. But I'll tell you what: when it when it comes to just bringing out the casual fans, like getting all New Yorkers together, it, I think it's hard to beat like that Yankees dynasty time from the late '90s when the Yankees are good like they are now. Uh, you're not leading me down that road quite yet. I'm just not, not, I'm not yet. there. You're not I'm ready. Not there. Well, I'm, not there. About, uh, I, I'm, I'm not there. I'm not there. I told you about my, my pessimistic buddy. I texted him, maybe question mark. He texted me back, maybe question mark. I wrote back, possibly. Like, that was last <laughs> night. That was last night. You're at 52 wins. Here we go. The first bite. The Stanley Cup champions are your Colorado Avalanche. There they are, buddy. Champions. Stanley, uh, the Cup's going to be in the house on Friday night, and uh, my guess is that they'll end it then 3-2 in overtime. Nazem Kadri, fresh off the thumb, surgery out 18 days, wins it no T. Uh, let me ask you this, first of all, because afterwards, uh, Mr. Cooper was not happy. I think you've probably seen the pitchers. Looked like they had a six on the ice, and the, and the uh, funny thing was um, Kadri was the one who supposedly jumped on late uh, and uh, got past the defenders. Did you... 
did you what did you think afterwards when Cooper said it? And given how Kemper um, advanced the puck and how it played out, that big a deal? I mean, that big a miss? You're an official. Is, that big, is it that big a miss, or did it not have anything to do with what Kadri did? It's an enormous miss uh, because of the fact that Nazem Kadri was the guy who made the entire play. And the rule is supposed to be that the player needs to be about five feet away from the bench before the replacement comes on. Nazem Kadri got on the ice on Monday and Nathan McKinnon was still in Sunday. Like, that is as far as you can be. And now Kadri gets behind a really tired Tampa defense. Yes, they were dead. That was the biggest part of the equation is that they cleared the puck, but because in the overtime you're still in the long change, they got the forwards changed out, but they couldn't get the defensemen changed out. It was too far. So that long pass ahead that started the play makes all the difference in the world. So, Ed, it's one of those things where I've heard people say forever let the players decide. Right. Put right, the whistles right. away. Let the players right. decide. And they that, did. Oh, yeah. Because when you say, let the kids decide what they're going to have for dinner, they're going to pick cake and pizza every single night. And so you can't let the players decide any more than you can let the kids decide because the players will take every advantage they possibly can. The officials are there to rein it in. Look, it's not malicious, but it's a miss. And it's, I'm going to tell you why it's a huge miss for the officials because of the fact that in hockey we saw in the third period they let some calls go and when you as an official when you get into the mindset of we need to let a few things go right you get your guard down and then you're in all sorts of trouble like you end up in a situation like this where you let everything go sidebar sidebar steve carp has texted me i was wrong when everything's going well in new york and they're all good might be the knicks Ooh, you know what? Carpy's right. I got to back down on that. Carpy's absolutely right. Because the Nets are only for transplanted New Jerseyites and hipsters. Right. right? That's that's pretty much what the Nets exist for at this point. So, yeah, he's, you know what? I'm, it's just been so long, Ed, that I'd forgotten. (laughs) What it's like when they're really, really good. 1995 was a long time ago, so. And uh, Carpy follows up until ownership changes. That won't change either. That's accurate information, Steve. <laughs> accurate and painful. Uh, press box transition. Uh, were you surprised? We talked about it yesterday. I don't think either of us thought Kemper would get the start. He did. Uh, the uh, we know we saw what he did on the uh, on the um, uh, goal there to win it. But I thought in the first period. I mean, he gives up the one. Boy, Tampa could have had three or four. This thing could have been over. I got to give him some credit. Yeah, Hedman's goal was a little bit soft, but overall, Darcy Kemper played a much better game than we've seen him play throughout the entirety of the Stanley Cup Finals. And that was one of the reasons that Colorado won, because like you just said, Tampa could have had more, and we talked about it yesterday. Colorado hasn't been a great defensive team. So, yeah, I'm a little bit surprised by that. But let's be honest, Ed, it's it's the only thing I'm surprised by because I, right. I believe that one of us here said Colorado in overtime. I might not have had the exact score correct, but That's I right. missed so many That's of these. That's right. You called the I OT. Miss, I missed so many of these, Ed, that I got to take my victory lap when I get one right. You ready for some Bischoff numbers, which I'm sure you already have? Whoa. Hey, you whoa, ready? You ready? Whoa, oh, I whoa. know. I know. I know. Are you it's, getting texts from Mexico? It's crazy. I'm not getting texts. I'm not getting. Thank goodness. Let him. Ha- I didn't even know it was his birthday yesterday. I had to, I had to, I had to give the uh, best wishes. Um, found out it was his birthday from Sam and Ash. 
Uh, here's some Bischoff numbers. NOT, Tampa Bay, 28% Corsi, 15% expected goals. They were, I, I, I think you were right. They were dead there. They, they were absolutely gassed. Oh, without question. And that, sometimes you don't see the Corsi 4 and, and that sort of number play out, but you absolutely, in the last five minutes of overtime, saw it play out. And that's the value of puck possession, right? When people hear these numbers and you hear, oh, Corsi 4, you guys are the data nerds. Right. No, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about being able to wear down the other team over time. And because of the way hockey is, eventually you get the kind of goal that they got because the way Nazem Kadri turned Sergachev, I didn't even know it was a goal. Nobody knew it was a goal. No. But I looked at the the move, Ed, and I was like, "Holy crap! What yeah. a move that was!" No, they uh, it was it was not funny, but uh, no one knew. And then and then when you watch the replay, it was an easy call that it was a goal, but it got stuck up there. And even uh, Wes McCauley, you know, Mister uh, Mister Top Referee, didn't realize it. Um, this, I think, when we look back at it, though, I mean, one thing's going to stand out: Colorado special teams. Uh, having their way. They were only one of two last night, but think about this in the series. Six of 13 on the power play. The Lightning are one of 14. Six of 13. I think when we look back when they win it finally, I mean, there's going to be a lot of reasons why, but that is staggering. Is there any truth to the rumor, Ed, that Bruce Cassidy was spotted with a notepad at ice level (laughs) trying to figure out how to get the Golden Knights to be able to do the same thing? I need some different players. (laughs) Yeah, let's see if he can get. Can, you, can he get Colorado's players? Can he get, can he get some of those players, and then they'll is be Ka- all right? Yeah, is, is Kale McCarr available? <laughs> uh, all right, so there you go. Uh, the cup will be in Denver on Friday night, and I'm assuming we'll both pick them to close it out. Yeah, if you're betting on a team, you you can't bet on the light. How big of a point. favorite will they be? Uh, that's actually a great question. Let's go ahead and uh, and look it up. I would make them probably a minus one fifty five, minus one sixty favorite on home ice to to win this thing. And let's see what our friends at DraftKings think about that. Uh, it is wait a minute, that can't be correct. I, I was actually, oh there it is oh. minus one seventy five. Oh, okay, they're favorites. Yeah, Lightning coming back plus 150. I was looking at the numbers initially. I'm like, what is that? Colorado plus 140. I'm looking at the puck line. So, All right. Uh, real quick, Pete DeBoer introduces Dallas head coach yesterday. Uh, here's one of the quotes from Pete I wanted to talk to you about. Every time you lose a job, you have reactions. Um, just said, said after getting fired at three seasons with the Knights, the Vegas one rattled me because I really thought as a coaching staff we worked as hard as we could with the situation that was handed to us. I thought getting 94 points out of a team that lost 500-plus man games and injuries, I thought our coaching staff really worked hard. I'm not going to lie to you. It rattled me a little bit. Uh, I think he was shocked. I think we were all shocked. Uh, Looking back on it, should he have been that shocked? Yes, but no. Uh, He should have been shocked in a vacuum, right? Because Pete DeBoer clearly knew the numbers, right? 500-plus man games isn't a random number that you just have in your head. Pete DeBoer knew how injured that team was. Now, you and I have talked about uh, the Ken Bulky article on Sinbin about how some of that was part of the plan. But the no part of being surprised is that you saw what happened to Gerard Gallant. Gerard Gallant took the team to the Stanley Cup Finals in year one. By the time he hit a four-game losing skid a couple of years later, he was out the door. So we now have a clear picture of how Bill Foley and George McPhee are going to run this team, and it's going to be cup or busts at every turn. One other quote. Uh, As a veteran coach who's gone through it before, you lick your wounds for a couple days, you reflect on what you could have done differently, and then the phone starts ringing and you start getting excited again. 
what and and real quick, what could he have done differently with the injuries? What could he have done? I mean, the power play, yeah, I get that. And do you go right to the power play uh, in terms of you know you didn't make enough changes, you didn't make enough changes with your staff soon enough? Because that's one of the few things that really stand out to me with all the injuries that he could have actually done differently on the ice to make this a better situation for him. So, and if you look at the voting for the awards this year in the NHL. No Golden Knights received MVP votes. Just votes, not even you know real consideration. And that goes that ballot goes down a few players, right? You can put someone in fifth place. So at some point, you have to look at the talent and say the talent wasn't there in particular this year for them to execute that power play any better. And when we talk about things like power play, I'll go outside the numbers and talk a little bit about chemistry and, and, right, be, and right. knowing where other players right. are going to be and having the same five on the ice. The Golden Knights couldn't do that this year. So, no, I'm not willing to look at it in terms of the power play. I'm going to look at it with Pete DeBoer and say, yeah, if you as Kelly McCrimmon and George McPhee are going to talk about the injuries at all, you cannot talk about what Pete DeBoer did or didn't do. How can you talk about what voice a player hears in the locker room when that player changes every five minutes when everybody's hurt? Right. Uh, lastly, on Pete, I think the Dallas Stars are getting a better coach than the coach that was in Vegas, a better coach than the coach that took San Jose to the finals, a better coach that took New Jersey to the finals. So GM uh, Jim Nill is getting me at the right time. I don't think it's a secret we want to unlock some of the offensive game to this group, what we can do better style plays-wise in order to be better. And the second is individually, what individual players can we get more out of and what's the plan for this? Um, I don't know if he can make Dallas a complete offensive team, but if he says what he says in terms of learning, even at this point in his career, he might be a better coach coming here. You're absolutely right, Ed. And what I hear in those quotes from Pete DeBoer is a man who was rattled and a man who is trying to reassure himself. Yes. Right? Like he's running through his own resume saying, and I went to the Stanley Cup final here, and I yep. went to the Stanley Cup final here. And he said, I was rattled by this. And I think he has to tell himself, I did the best job I could, and yet I still got let go. What am I going to have to do here in Dallas in order to keep things moving the right direction for me? All right, off and running on a Thursday. When we come back, yes, Mr. Yankee's going to tell me about Aaron Judge and what's going on with the arbitration in the Yankees. Back after this. We're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff. Sam Gordon at 730. He'll talk to you about the Aces blowing that lead and what he thinks about the NBA draft coming up. Darren Millard at 8.30, Miles Simmons at 9, and have yourself a drink with J.R. Starkis at 9.30. Dateline, St. Petersburg, Florida. Aaron Judge intends just to wear a nice suit and introduce myself and sit back as a three-person arbitration panel debates whether the Yankees star should pay their, whether the Yankees should pay their star outfielder the $21 million salary he believes he's worth this season. The hearing will be held tomorrow. Judge, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I've had people in my agency, my players, that went through the process and they hated it. And then other people went through it and said it was actually good to hear about yourself. All right, take us through this. Uh, is this an easy decision, arbitration, or they can actually come up with stuff, which they usually do to uh, kind of sour the resume? I cannot believe the New York Yankees have let this get this far, of Aaron Judge having to go into an arbitration room and hear anything negative that they want to come up with uh, from him. I don't understand it. I don't get what the management idea is here over $4 million. And that's what we're talking about. What is the, yeah, what is the issue here? Dollars. Right, Ed. I don't understand. He wants 21. The Yankees offered 17. So he's getting paid 17. Uh, guys who are getting paid close to Aaron Judge money right now. 
Next on the list of the highest paid Major League Baseball outfielders is Michael Brantley at $16 million. Uh, Chris Taylor is making $15 million this year. I know you're a Dodger fan, Ed. Uh, Chris Taylor is probably not worth within $2 million of Aaron Judge. Kid strikes uh, out way too much. And let me let me tell you who else is making $17 million this year. One Cody Bellinger. Oh, no. Swinging through the high. Just throw that guy high cheese. It's over. He's sitting in the dugout. So, so you can see that Ed's ready to do all of the Dodgers arbitration on Cody Bellinger. <laughs> oh, believe and Chris me, Taylor. Bellinger. I I bring in a video of him swinging at high fastballs and say, "All right, you're down to ten million. <laughs> Jeez. So, so now the Yankees, who still want to sign Aaron Judge long term, are taking him to arbitration over four million dollars. I I guarantee that some, at some point the nineteen million offer has been made in the middle, and I'm sure Aaron Judge, feeling like he's been lowballed in the contract negotiations, like no, I know I'm worth twenty one million, and I'm going to take you to arbitration to get it. And the Yankees, a team that prints money, is going to go do this over four million dollars and potentially make Aaron Judge even matter. He can say what he wants to say publicly about yeah, I'm looking forward to it. No one is looking forward to a performance review in which there is only one side of the job that they talk about. Ed, you and I have both uh, spent plenty of time as ink-stained wretches in our career. If we went into a a, uh, performance review with our editor and our editor pulled out a list of every typo and mistake that we had ever made in a column, but never talked about, oh, you won this award or you really scooped him on this story, that's what's going to happen to Aaron Judge. No one wants that. I don't. I don't get it, especially with the money they have. Um, are you worried long term? And you know, let's say he gets a twenty-one million, he'll be happy about that. But are you worried long term when it comes time for him to actually make a decision that he'd actually leave? And he says all the right things. I want to be a Yankee for life. I love it here. Can it really be that bad to where it would stick with him? And when the time came, he might say, "You know what? Let me put myself in the market and see." And he might do that anyway. I, look, I unless the number is absolutely outrageous that they want to go long term, someone like him might be intelligent to go on the market and say who's going to give me, you know, 300 million or whatever he would want. Uh could this stain them in the in the future? You think it's, you know, if he gets his 21 million it'll be okay. If it's truly a business decision, he's not going to care. But everybody cares. Dylan Batansis when he went to arbitration with the Yankees talked about how hard it was to sit in that room. So we know that this management group will do a good job of tearing you down. But I think as a Yankees fan, I have an unpopular opinion here as a Yankees fan. They're damned if they do and damned if they don't when it comes to signing Aaron Judge long term because they're damned if they do because if he already turned down the contract that he turned down, then he wants more than seven years or way more than that average annual value that they were they offered him. Uh, newsflash, Aaron Judge will start next season at 31 years old. No one ages well on these long-term contracts. Baseball system is set up where players are basically making up the money they should have made in the first five or six years if they're superstars in their free agent contract. You're paying them for past performance. And so they're damned if they don't because Aaron Judge is going to walk out the door. (laughs) Like the year that he had last year that they're arguing over $4 million, he had 39 home runs. He had his second highest war in a single season for the Yankees last year. So what is it that they want him to do that he hasn't done? He played 148 games last year. The knock on Aaron Judge is that he can't stay healthy. And it's an understandable knock because the three seasons before that, he missed at least 50 games. But that hasn't been the case in 2021 and 2022. He's found a way to stay on the field. And over the course of Aaron Judge's last 215 games, 
he has 66 home runs. I don't understand it. I'm with you. Uh, it, it makes absolutely no sense on the money-wise, and I'd love to know, and I think you would be, I'd love to be a fly on the wall, and maybe they're going to bring up the injuries. You just made a good point there. Um, I don't know what else they're going to, maybe they're going to, I can't believe at this point they bring up his age just for one year. They're not going to do that. Love to be on a fly on the wall um, to find out what they could possibly say. Other than injuries, performance-wise, I mean, how long can their argument really be? He can just start putting out numbers and numbers, and this is who I am, this is uh, this is what I've done as a player. I, if I'm the arbitrator, I'm like, okay, Yankees, you're up. Well, he, you know, he has a tendency to get hurt. Okay, your argument's over. He gets $21 million. Exactly, because you can only base this arbitration on last year. That's the rules. They can't look at anything he did this year. They can't look at anything before that. Well, if you look at last year, here's the rest of Aaron Judge's stat line. Uh, 89 runs, 98 RBIs, and a 287 batting average. Okay, he wasn't great defensively, but he was so otherworldly on offense that there's no reason for this. And more than anything else, when it comes down to it, when we talk about employees in a workplace, just pay them what they're worth. Right, right. Just pay the guy what he's worth in the first place, especially when you're an organization like the Yankees that has some of the highest ticket prices, that charges what they do for the Yes Network. You have the money. Now use it where you're supposed to. Great stuff there. We'll see tomorrow. The uh, arbitration hearing is supposed to be on Friday. All right, when we come back, the one and only Sam Gordon. This is the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff. Graney, Candy, Danny running the show. Join us now. Please be joined. Follow him on Twitter at by Sam Gordon. It's Sam Gordon from the Review Journal. Columnist, Enterprise Reporter, covers pretty much everything. How are you, buddy? Doing good, Ed. How you doing? Good, good. All right, let's start with the blown 28-point lead the other night. Uh, Adam and I were saying the next day that the one thing, excuse me, the two things that could really stop this team from winning it all, and I know you've written about it, injuries, we know a couple have already gone down, but specifically defensively. Uh, even when they've won, they've given up a lot of points. I know Becky Hammond's very honest about it. Uh, even when they win, she'll uh, she'll point out the negative things in terms of what they've done, which I like. She doesn't hide anything. But what is it about them defensively that makes them completely suspect that they could blow a 28-point lead at home? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I think, uh, uh, well, first and foremost, I think the lack of depth plays a part in that, right, Ed? I mean, you're talking about five players um, that you're essentially depending to play 30-plus minutes. And over the course of a game uh, against a team like Chicago, who's similar to the Aces, has multiple ball handlers, a bunch of shooters over the floor, uh, all over the floor, and likes to run. Um, that that's going to wear them. You know, I thought that wore them out um, late, later in the game. That to me uh, looked like the first time the Aces were really tired um, late in the game. So I, I think that plays a part. Uh, that certainly has to play a part in it. But also, um, when you talk about you know from a roster construction standpoint, um, as good as they can look offensively, and you know they've been I think solid defensively against most teams, but. They do have to be better against some of the title contenders, but um, they, they just they, they, they're kind of locked in. And this is the, you know the starting lineup they have is kind of their fixed um, lineup. Going back to the point with depth, they just, they just don't have a lot of size, and I, I think that you know against certain teams um, that could come back to, to, to hurt them uh, as well. I think that you know those are the, it's a combination of things. I think um, that you know last year the Aces were among the top defensive teams, and they had a lot of size, and it was really hard. Um, to score around the rim and to score in the paint, and when you look at this year's this year's team, um, you know Asia Wilson's a lone rim protector, and you're you're kind of small on the perimeter. When you know, so so opposing teams that have size that have 
multiple ball handlers and that have shooting can do the exact same thing that the Aces did, um, spread the floor out a little bit, and then there's no, you know, there's with, with, the, with the exception of Asia, um, no real rim protection in there. So that's what Chicago did. They were able to spread the Aces out. You have a bunch of people that can shoot, pass, um, and, and finish around the rim. And it was kind of Chicago giving the Aces a taste of their own medicine. So um, the depth thing, I think, again, you know, we've, we've talked about that all year. How is that going to play out um, over the course of the season? It, may, it might hurt them. You know, it's, I thought it did the other night. It might not. It's just the team that's still up, even with those issues. Um, of course, as we know, it's 13-3. and is more, more than capable to win a championship. But, yeah, it's not, a, it's not a perfect team by any means. And, and there's a ways to go before, um, you know, there's some things to iron out before, uh, before the playoffs begin. I think that's, that's pretty obvious at this point. How much of it, Sam, comes back to Asia Wilson growing as the leader of a team? Because, yeah, she's obviously been the best player on her team, well, you know, back to South Carolina, back to AAU ball. But at the same time, you don't lose a 28-point lead uh, in a lot of situations, and you lose it to a team with a Candace Parker and a championship pedigree. So... When you look at the situation with Aja Wilson leading this team at 13-3, and three, uh, what do you think she has to do to kind of grow into that uh, number one superstar on a championship team role? Yeah, I think, you know, it's just about, um, you know, finding the right balance of calm in, in, in a game like that, right? I think what you saw the other night is the game just kind of got away with them. When things started to go awry, there wasn't necessarily – um, that calming presence, you know, that, that it, it, things just got more frantic. As Chicago continued to rally and rally and rally, um, the Aces continued to deviate and, and go further and further away um, from what was working. I think from a big-picture standpoint, Asia Wilson's, you know, a phenomenal leader in just in terms of the culture she sets. She's, of course, incredibly unselfish. You know, she doesn't need to take 20 or 25 shots more than, more than content, you know, with deferring to her teammates at, at various points. But, there did seem to be a little bit of a frantic element to the Aces, and that's you know they've only lost three times, but that's kind of been in in over uh, you know an underlying theme with all three losses. That was that when things start to go wrong, they go really wrong, and they just there's not just a, that that presence, um, or that not necessarily there's not that presence, but they haven't executed, they haven't been able to successfully kind of settle down um, in, in those games. I, I think it's a work in progress. This is this is a team that's still for as good as they've been. Um, you know, Becky Hammond has been very adamant all year that it's about developing playoff habits, it's about developing a big-picture culture, and it's about doing things um, the right way whenever, you know, that regardless of what the score was. I think um, they got a little relaxed the other night, right? And how could you not? It's kind of natural when, you, when you're up 28 uh, in the first half. But, but Chicago certainly didn't. And that's, that's, you know, kind of the thing that I think, you know, the, the, that Becky Hammond wants to establish is that, hey, even if this team is, you know, even if you're playing well, you got to do things the right way for all four quarters. And um, there's no doubt that, you know, for the first quarter they did those things and, and you saw what that looked like. And for the better part of the season, um, they've been playing that way. But when they don't, which was quarters two, three, and four, when the ball stops moving, when shots start going up early in the shot clock, and, and when, you know, defensively there's not, you know, not good enough ball pressure at the point of attack and the help's not coming quick enough, um, it can be a total disaster. So it's just it's just about that. You know, they, they, I think they're going to continue to get better at these things throughout the course of the season. But yeah, again, going back to the the, the blown lead, there's definitely a couple issues on this. You know, a couple issues that this team has that you know, if they don't win a championship, we're going to know why. What about uh, because I know everyone's kind of saying you know Asia's MVP now of the league. I'm not going to argue that. But for a few weeks there, people are saying you know what Kelsey Plum's the dark horse for that award. Um, You've watched her now the entire league, 16 games in. What impresses you the most? Is it just Becky Hammond made her, as we've heard, you know, 
took the reins off and said, go ahead and play, much like Lambeer didn't? Is it that easy of an explanation? Or have you seen something from Kelsey Plum's game that kind of put her over the top here and really has brought her to the to the forefront? Yeah, um, I think it's, it's interesting. We're going to talk, you know, just after we have a conversation about how bad they played defensively the other night, I think one of the big things just over the course of her career um, is she has become, a you know, a better and more willing defender. Certainly, um, you know, works hard on that end, you know, for the most part, and, and is you know, but, you know, really, really performs well um, in, in team concepts. I think offensively, um, you kind of touched on. It. I think she's just being empowered by Becky Hammond. And he's playing in a situation now where there's not two bigs on the floor, there's not two low post players on the floor, so she has a lot more space. Not just her, but everybody has a lot more space to kind of operate with. And when you talk about a player like Kelsey Plum in particular, you know, not only is she an elite three point shooter, you know, shooting better than forty percent for the season, we know she can do that. But she's one of the fastest players in the league um, in terms of her quickness and being able to get up and down the floor um, in transition. She's super fast. She has a tight handle. And the space that she has to operate with now is just really conducive to, to her scoring package. What are you going to – you know, you, got to, you have to respect her jumper, so you have to play up on her. And then if you do that, you're giving her room to attack. She's a better playmaker now. She's um, – at least as of a couple of days ago, I haven't, checked the, I haven't checked the stats as of, you know, since the game the other night, but um, she was leading the team in assists. Um, even with Chelsea Gray, who's as good as a point guard as there is in the WNBA, um, she's just—I think—just a player that's that has a really complete offensive skill set. That's now in a situation um, playing in an offensive scheme that that maximizes um, those abilities. Um, she's always been a you know a fearless offensive player and somebody that's more than capable of taking over games. I think you know the you know the other night that was almost to their detriment. You know she tried to shoot them uh, back in it again. You live with that with a player who's as talented of a scorer as she is, but. She's just, you know, at this stage of her career, she's I mean, 27 going on 28. She's physically stronger. Um, she's as, you know, she's as, as, as skilled as, as a, a guard as there is in the league in terms of her jumper. And now just the space um, is really letting her operate on an efficient level um, and on both ends of the floor. Sam, I think one of the craziest things for me is that you talked about the, the fact that they're faster, they're smaller. Becky Hammond is, has them playing more up-tempo and, and frankly, just more fun overall, right? We're mm-hmm. talking about this team in a way that we didn't talk about it in the past, and I hear people talking about it in a way that people didn't talk about it in the past. It feels like one of the biggest benefits is that not only are the Aces good, but they're fun. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, I, I would agree, Adam. I'd agree 110 percent. They play a, a style of basketball that's, you know, very modern in terms of a lot of three-point shooting, a, a lot of tempo, a lot of pace. And, you know, when they're clicking well, and, and for the most part, again, they're coming off of a 28-point loss, but let's be clear, they've been the best, you know, far and away, I think, the best team in the league this season with their record. And, and, and you know, they're, they're, they're all the advanced numbers um, tend to back that up, too. Don't want to make too much of a loss, you know, too much of one particular loss in June. But, yeah, it's they play a, 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 an entertaining style of basketball. They have great players with great big personalities that are able to, you know, kind of help promote this team on a national level. The, the social media team does an unbelievable job uh, allowing players and fans to see that, you know, to see that side of this team. And then you go out there and, and, and see them when, when they play. And, it's again, it's a style that's um, fairly unique. There's, I think, to, to make, you know, an NBA comparison, um, and, of course, they got to win some championships first before this comparison really sticks, but there's some Golden State Warriors to them uh, in the sense that we've seen at various times this year they might look like they're stuck in the mud and all of a sudden – you know, they uncork a 14-2 to run in the, in the span of three or four minutes. There's just that much firepower. Um, and, and with Becky Hammond at the helm, they play a style that's, again, really conducive to maximizing the, certainly the offensive skill set uh, of all five players. It's not, you know, not the team that it was last year. I mean, for as good as they were and as good as they have been the last, 
you know, few years with, with two traditional bigs, um, the game is, is veering away from that, right? And, and from a stylistic, from an aesthetic standpoint, you know, watching some, you know, watching a team dribble the ball up the floor, dump it into the post and kind of, you know, take up a lot of the shot clock. That isn't, I think for most fans at this point, it's not, not as exciting, but this team, um, they, they play a really, you know, they play a really fun brand of basketball. They play a very modern, fun brand of basketball that results in a lot of points, a lot of tempo, and that's in 2022. That's what people want to see. Uh, the draft is tonight. I want to ask you a few questions. First, are you a believer in Chet Holmgren? Yeah, I, I'm definitely a believer in Chet Holmgren. To what degree, Ed, I'm not sure. I don't. I think when you, you draft a guy, you know, with the number one or number two or number three pick, you want somebody that, you know, is going to be a 20-plus per game score. I think that's, you know, kind of the idea. You want a cornerstone kind of player. I, I don't know. I don't know if I've if we've seen him be assertive enough on the offensive end or prioritize his offense uh, enough um, where, where I, I, I can say with certainty that I think he's going to be that. I think the skill is there, uh, and I think there's a lot we didn't see at Gonzaga just based on the way that that team plays with so many shooters, shooters and, and other great guards and just kind of the system he was in. Uh, but the, but the, the skills are there. So I, I'm not saying it won't happen. I just don't know, know if it's necessarily a certainty. Where I do believe in him without a, a shadow of a doubt is defensively. Um, just his mobility, his shot blocking instincts. Uh, I think you, if you deploy his, you know, at the, at the next level, once his once his skills, are, you know, depending on the scheme, um, he can be deployed as a really, really, really disruptive defender. I don't think because how how good he is on that end, the mobility, the wingspan, the timing, the the, the IQ on that end. I don't think there's any way um, he fails. I'm not sure if he's going to be a, a surefire superstar. But I think Chad Holmgren is going to contribute to winning um, for a long time, and the, op- the the upside is obvious. I mean, he's seven one with a handle, a jump shot, uh, can move, can run, can move, um, and can block shots and and deter shots. It, it's it's pretty clear why um, why the attributes are so tantalizing. I'm not I'm not you know again I'm not sure he's going to maximize them, but I do think he's going to contribute to winning in the NBA for a really long time. Is Jabari Smith the easy pick? Um, it, it certainly seems that way, but I, you know, again, I don't know. He he's at six ten. The shooting is there. He he's certainly the best shooter uh, among the top three prospects. He's a forty percent guy at Auburn at six ten. Uh, a lot of shades of, of Rashard Lewis, who was a guy that helped the Mad the Orlando Magic get to the finals. Kind of the remix, um, you know, two way version. He, he has the tools to be an excellent perimeter defender, but but the rest of his offense, you know, there's the there's holes in his the rest of his offensive game. His dribble isn't super tight. He's not. Um, a, a great finisher, and you've got a guy like Paulo Banquero, um from Duke who, on the offensive end, is all those things. Has three-level scoring right now, has a low post game. He's 6'10", 6'11", physically um, ready right now to get buckets on the perimeter and in the paint um, against NBA players, but then there's questions about his defense. His, the defensive effort wasn't what we saw from Chet Holmgren and, and, and Jabari Smith. So that, I think, what, what makes this draft so polarizing is you kind of at this point I think most NBA teams um, have those three as kind of the consensus top group um, uh, in terms of who you know who the best three players are. But you ask different teams, they'll have somebody different at the top of their draft board. It feels um, at this point, despite what the betting market reflects, um, we saw a report from from Adrian Wojnarowski at ESPN that it, it seems pretty fixed at this point. Jabari Smith, um, Chad Holmgren, Paulo Banchero in that order. Um, but you can really make a strong and compelling case, I think, for all three of these guys. And depending on what, how you want to shape your team, there's an argument to be made uh, for each one of them because their skill sets are all a little different. But the upside is there with all three of them. Well, he is Sam Gordon. Follow him on Twitter at by Sam Gordon. Read his columns, his enterprise stuff, all his uh, stories. Love huge stories coming up in the summer league from the Review Journal. Thanks, Sammy. We appreciate it. All right, thanks, fellas. Appreciate it. Enjoy the draft tonight. We'll talk soon. Take care of yourself. All right. 
Sam Gordon from the Review Journal. A lot of good stuff there, especially on the aces, huh? It's a great point to talk about how one of the trade-offs you're going to get of the fact that they don't have the same size anymore is they don't have the rim protection. The defense is going to have moments like this. When we come back, Rory McIlroy, he's still at it. He's ripping away. You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler. Rory McIlroy coming back, obviously talking about Brooks Kepka, who is the latest PGA Tour player to join the LIV circuit, uh, fronted by two-time Open champion Greg Norman. Kepka will compete in the first LIV golf event in the United States next week in Portland. Last week, Kepka, who was ranked 19th in the official World Golf Rankings, criticized reporters for asking him about LIV golf. I'm here at the U.S. Open. Uh, I don't know why you keep. I don't know why you guys keep doing that. Uh, throwing a black code cloud over the Open. The more legs you give the LIV golf, the more you keep talking about it. Eh, I'm not surprised about Brooks Kepka. Are you? Uh, he kind of seems like a dude who'd rip reporters and the next week sign the hundred million dollars signing bonus and uh, go get the money. The jackass doth protest too yes. much. Yes. Yeah. Um, Look at who's gone to the Live Golf Tour, and you're going to find a list of players that I will tell you that tour media are going to tell you they're not going to miss a whole lot. Right. 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 Bryson DeChambeau and Patrick Reed and now Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson. Like these are guys who were never the best friends of the media. And I'll tell you a little secret about Phil Mickelson that's not going to be a secret to you, Ed, but will be a secret to a lot of people. Uh, very different person when the cameras are on oh, versus yeah. when the print when the print reporters are around. Oh, yeah. uh, so, you know, what I think we're seeing with Roy McElroy's comments is that these are guys who've had plenty of reason not to like each other for a long time. And now what we see is that they just have a really good reason to talk about it. Uh, like Roy McElroy, I think, is just saying what a lot of guys are thinking in the first place, which is like, yeah, it, don't do it this way. Don't say one thing and then do another. If you're going to go take the money, go take the money. Uh, that's almost more like Phil, right? Like Phil just went and took the money and tried to, you know, find a way to justify it, which he obviously didn't do. Sure. Um, learned also players involved in the Live Golf Invitational will be allowed to compete at the 150th Open Championship at St. Andrews next month. The RNA announced Wednesday. I know the PJ has, I don't think, has control over these majors. Are you surprised or do you believe in the future the majors will follow suit and suspend them? Uh, they did not uh, for the U.S. Open, which uh, was won by Matt Fitzpatrick. We know that. He won the major at the country club. Um, but those guys played in it. None of them did really well. I don't know if that has any kind of correlation in terms of the you know, the cloud over them and how they played there at the uh, U.S. Open. But can you see the Masters? Can you see the PGA? Can you see people like that um, saying, you know what, we're going to follow suit? No. They're going to put the best TV field out there that they can. And they don't have the same interest in this that the PGA Tour does. Let's not get it twisted. The PGA Tour is not made up of all saints. But when it comes to comparing it to live golf, it's certainly in the right. And so this is not an organization that is filled with people who are here to say, we're morally here to do the right thing because of the Saudis, et cetera, et cetera. No, there's a threat to their business and they're taking the steps that they have to take to protect their business. Now, the US Open, the British Open, they're run by the golf associations. They don't have to adhere to those same rules. All right, when we come back, UNLV Hoops. The UNLV Hoops went in the travel port, uh, transfer portal last night, got someone from Arizona, four-star recruit, and the Aces have some all-stars coming to your way, starters, three of them. Uh, we're going to ask about the Blue Jays hitting coach uh, Guillermo Martinez and more on the front 